Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Books. Sending flowers has always been the best way to show someone you care, but it isn't always easy or satisfying. Thankfully, Books.com is a better way to buy flowers with fully transparent pricing, an easy shopping experience, and an incredible selection starting at $40. Plus, they take customer service very seriously, so if they make a mistake, they will get it right. Show every mom in your life that you care with flowers from The Books Company. Just visit B-O-U-Q-S.com and enter that promo code WATCH for 20% off your Mother's Day purchase. Flowers will sell out, so don't wait. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Maria Bamford's new Netflix original comedy special. If you're looking for comedy that's a little off the beaten path, like a several mile detour from that path, Maria Bamford's new special is the remedy from the mundane. Bamford performs a rapid fire, playful stand up set for crowds at park benches, in living rooms, at bowling alleys, and LA theaters in this roving comedy special. She's savagely upbeat, lovably awkward, and full of surprises. She's one of you know the best comics of the last 10 years. Maria Bamford's hilarious. Uh, take a while. Wildly funny trip through a one-of-a-kind comic's mind. A prolific voice actor and comic, Bamford also stars in the critically acclaimed Netflix original series, Lady Dynamite. It's an excellent show. It's based on her own life. Watch Maria Bamford, Old Baby, now streaming only on Netflix. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio, he's a replicant! It's Andy Whoa. V. Wells! Why are you doing spoilers so early on a Monday? Well, I don't know if you're a replicant. You literally just said you're a replicant. This is part of your new Trumpian logic. This entire, using. the last five years of this podcast has just been the <laughs> test to see if you're a replicant. Huh? And I'm going to now quietly sit down in the rain and power myself off. Blade Runner humor, because there's a Blade Runner trailer. Andy, it's a beautiful Monday in Los Angeles. Chris, it's just great to be back here with you. You know, we've had. And we're talking about dystopia! (laughs) Yes! You're fired up. Well, we got sharks off the coast. Yeah. I'm playing golf. That's weird. Uh,. You know, we've got Blade Runner back. We're making sure there are no scientists at the EPA. Yeah, and uh, we also are going to be talking about Handmaid's Tale and American Gods. A lot going on. I'm just happy. Look, we've had a lot of guests recently. Hello, darkness, take my hand. We have another guest on Thursday. We're excited about that. But yeah, it's we'll nice just to just... Yeah, it is. It's a nice surprise. Maybe it should be. Tease it. Te- like, tease them? Tell make them fun who of them? it is so that they're like, I'm, I'm oh, tuning into that. You're using all the shop talk. <laughs> tease it. Uh, yeah, we're, we're staying in the Veep minds. We yeah, had yeah, yeah. the the showrunner of Veep, David Mandel, come by. Yeah, but uh, it would oh, say oh. that a lot of that podcast is spent talking about his work on American scene. comedy institutions yeah. such as Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, which, yeah. he, which he worked on. We had a really good time talking to that him. That was awesome. That's Thursday. Um, but today is all about... It's all about us. Yeah. Any house cleaning you got? I think, you know, just I know that we keep teasing Annihilation. By uh, Jeff Vandermeer. By Jeff Vandermeer is the next Double Down Book Club. You should cop that. I think Read we'll it. probably be checking to do that the end of the month, beginning of next month. I'm easy. Are you? I got nothing else going on. Yeah. <laughs> Just staying away from the beach. Um, Greenwald, let's talk a little bit about this Blade Runner trailer. I, for some reason, was thinking a lot about this in relationship to something else that's very near to your heart. Okay. Twin Peaks. Oh, my God. I can't believe that's happening. So there's some things that are uh, franchises that you're like, yeah, of course, just keep making Star Wars Mm -hmm. movies. Like, even though this first three Star Wars movies were, like, in some ways the paradigm of Mm -hmm. a trilogy, Mm -hmm. uh, there's obviously tons of stuff to be told about that universe. Tales to tell. And then there are things that I I think the Twin Peaks and Blade Runner actually share a singularity of vision, which is why I'm kind of bringing this up. Uh, Even though Ridley Scott is participating as an executive producer on Blade Runner 2049, which is coming out in October. And it's directed by uh, 
Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right anymore. I just always am feeling like I'm second-guessing my Denis. 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 Uh, and then Lynch is obviously directing all of the episodes. All 18 hours, 19 hours. <laughs> whatever it is of, of Twin Peaks, which is this month. It's in two weeks, That's my crazy. man. That's crazy. I have waited for this for 26 years, and now I don't even know how to feel. That's how I that's how I kind of feel about this Blade Runner thing, where it's yeah. like, on one hand, it is something that had such a enigmatic, uh, ambiguous ending, mm-hmm. and it has been shaped in various ways by director, subsequent director's cuts since the theatrical release. Um, and it is such an iconic movie, it's such an iconoclastic movie, it is such a unique very much of its time for as, as much as it opened up the world of sci-fi and, and mm-hmm. movies with that and Alien. It, it is um, very much coming out of the end of the sort of New Hollywood era of, of the Coppola and Altman and Scorsese mm-hmm. movies that um, in, in some ways Blade Runner and Alien are the bridge between the, the auteur stuff that was happening yep. in the 70s and the Spielberg b- b- box office smashes that would eventually lead to... Um, the world of IP and franchises and, and that we series live in that we live in now. Yeah, well um, said. Thank you. Uh, so I have I, I have a lot of mixed emotions about this. I'm, I'm very interested to go back to this world. I can't think of a better director to bring it to life. I love Ryan Gosling movies. Um, this trailer that came out today is the second trailer, and it looks very much like an action film in some ways. Like there looks like there's a lot more set pieces, and there's a lot more. It's so strange to revisit a world where the whole attraction in the first place was its newness. Does that make sense? Yes, but I think that part of the attraction now is its uniqueness because we never went back to that world. In a sense, we've been living in it ever since. It is an enormous, as you said, visual um, and tonal touchstone Mm -hmm. for much of our entertainment from the last almost 40 years. Um, But... It, it's it's a very very specific world and and one that I, like I feel like we've been living in the children of it but we've never gone back to that world. I think the most important thing about this trailer uh, and about this movie existing is what you said about our man Arami Denis because I want to see his movies. Yeah, I want to see all of his movies. Yeah, yeah. And I watched this trailer and what I thought was, give me this. Give me all of this. I want all of it. I want to drink it in. I'm so thirsty for this world and things to look like this. You know, we we struggle as fans of, we always want a bygone era of Hollywood. We always strive for it. And even when, you know, we were obviously younger in high school and college in the 90s, but I don't know how much we were realizing that we were in a very specific era that people would long for just five to 10 years later. we have to accept it at a certain point that we live in this world of, of genre and blockbuster and IP. Um, and I think we just have to accept that what we live in is a world where in the best hands, in the most talented visionary hands, that that IP, those pre-existing movies or titles or con- concepts, they're the on-ramps for their vision. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't... He, I mean, it's interesting because, because Villeneuve did make Arrival, which is in many ways his own Blade Runner. It's, an, it's, a, it's based on a, sh- a science fiction short story and is very singular and not connected to anything else. But in order to jump up to this budget level, you know, certainly before Arrival did surprisingly robust business, like he needed to play in this pool, I guess. And to me at this point, maybe I'm losing some of my cynicism, but like let's, and, and it's because I'm a fan, but let's see what he did with it. Yeah. You know, I mean, my, my thing about the, when we talked about the Star Wars trailer, the scene of the red smoke on the desert. I was like, okay, I want that. Yeah. If you have this money, you have this play, this sandbox to play in, 
give me visions, man. Go for it. And this trailer is delirious and intoxicating. And I'm not just saying that because Mackenzie Davis is in it. It's really sumptuous and really exciting. Yeah, I think that it, it uh, one of the things that I miss about the film, like the film going experience when I was younger is the, frankly, the feeling like you were going to a movie and the stakes weren't that high. Like you could go see Single White Female or, you know, uh, Menace to Society or anything, you know, in the, in the theater. And stakes it, were, the stakes were high for Steven Weber in Single White Female. The stakes were high for him. Yeah. The high heels were high. Um, but you, the, the idea that you could just like make a movie to make a movie and that that, that experience was enough and it didn't have to hold up um, the bottom line of a ton of shareholders or mm-hmm. not that that wasn't the case back then. I'm not trying to be naive, but still. Um, Blade Runner actually is closer to that kind of low stakes filmmaking than we actually think about it. I mean, obviously it was an expensive sci-fi film, but it was essentially a Raymond Chandler movie. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's a mystery. And so, um, the other thing that Blade Runner did was it didn't answer questions. It wasn't explained how we got to this world. Yes. It wasn't explained why certain things were happening the way they were. You know, there there was a lot of – there was some information about using replicants as slave labor and stuff like that. But there wasn't, like, this huge explanation as to, like, the events that led to that. So I'll be interested to see whether or not Blade Runner 2049 overly fills in the blank spaces mm-hmm. and to what extent that kind of ruins the bit. Uh, this is actually a very good segue into some of my thoughts about Handmaid's Tale. But I did want to say – if we accept that we're living in a world of this kind, this kind of movie making is paramount, <clears throat> this type of storytelling is paramount, and there are only a certain number of dystopic visions to recycle. Mm-hmm. Um, the first few images of this trailer, I was like, well, we're doing Westworld again here? Like, I yeah, know right. the plot of Blade Runner. Jared but, Leto is just like, but, I don't know what I know. First you know? of all, that was a, that's a keeper. You yeah. got to just put that in the in the utility <laughs> belt for Suicide Squad, too. Um I'm a man of simple pleasures, you know? I want to see my robots drop out of plastic bags. Yeah. I don't want to see them in milk baths. That's just how I like to see my fake people move. Actually, very specific taste. <laughs> I know. You didn't know that about me. Yeah. Because it's literally never come up before. Yeah. But now you guys know. I like to see them slither out of bags. Yeah. It's just okay. kind of my thing. Okay. Uh, but Handmaid's Tale. We should talk about this. Yeah, because, sure. Because what you're talking about, not just in terms of dystopic visions, but also... Um, I was thinking about it a lot in cinematic terms, which is interesting because it's a TV show. So we should tee it up. Yeah, I mean, Handmaid's Tale is on Hulu. It is based on the novel by Margaret Atwood, stars Elizabeth Moss, Alexis Bledel, Joseph Fiennes, mm-hmm. Yvonne Stravowski. Strahovski. Sure. So the first few episodes were directed by Reed Morano, who is an accomplished cinematographer and directed an Olivia Wilde movie a couple years ago mm-hmm. called Meadowlands, which got some uh, some notice, and she does an amazing job with this. She's also, uh, I can't remember what she shot recently, but I think she did also work on Billions this year. Can wow. I just say something really quickly before we get into Handmaid's Tale? Everyone's been waiting for this. Fucking Billions, man. Shout out to Billions. You know what? I don't want to interrupt. I feel bad because it's like we were like, we were like getting really ready to talk yeah. about dystopia. And now I'm like, wait, let's talk about Billions. Billions is a fucking beast, man. Wait, I sound like Rappaport right now. I sound like Michael Rappaport. <laughs> That's fine. But, I've always wanted to do a podcast um, with him. Billions is the most entertaining show on television this year. Like, entertaining, like, soup to nuts. This is an entertaining show. Does your wife show. agree with you on this? Is she in? Oh, man. She was playing Super Mario. I was watching this last night. I was just testing. Um, they had a penultimate episode of the season. That I was, thought, wait, last night there was another episode? Yeah, it was the finale. 
I thought the finale was last week no. when you were freaking out with Tim Simons about it. No, and I was like saying that the, that was uh, Karen Kusuma directed that, and it mm-hmm. was uh, basically an Ocean's Eleven remake. It was okay. a, a heist movie, but with you know a bunch of different time shifting. Uh, and this week was like an incredibly satisfying finale. Like it was just like a very they have found the tone of this move of this show. I I think I wanted it to be a little bit more um, lived in and realistic for yes. some reason. And they have decided that when you got Giamatti and you got Damian Lewis, mm-hmm. what you want is um, the pork sandwich with yeah. the ham sandwich on top. Of yeah, it. with a little bit of Taylor roll on the side. Yeah. So um, my, I, I just, I, w- I wouldn't want to spoil anything for you. I just would tell you that the most of the season hinges on the IPO for a smoothie company called Ice Juice yeah. that Chuck Rhodes Sr. invests in. And that David Strathairn is in it uh, this season as a man named Blackjack Foley, an Albany fixer. Um, And that uh, David Costaville, who plays Wags, is just out of this world. My old neighbor in Brooklyn. Uh, This is a show that you just like, I I see this is, if this is going to run for six seasons as the Showtime way, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I I have nothing but... uh, optimism and support for this project this art project known as billions because of what you're saying because i was out after the first season because it seemed to be veering it seemed to be having trouble balancing the two visions of what the show could be mm-hmm. um and from my to my taste early on it veered a little too close to the troubled angry powerful men doing battle like no, gladiators it's, it's when when this you know this is a you know here's a since we're going macro yeah. here's a bullet point tv should be fun yeah, now, it, it's a it, funny thing to say no. in front of Handmaid's Tale, yeah. but it does influence my viewing of it, which even though I'm enjoying it. TV can be challenging, and it can be smart, and it can be dark, and it can be just about anything entertainment or art can be. But it kind of always has to have a little bit of fun, even if it's perverse fun. Yeah. And it makes me happy to hear that they are leaning into that, especially because of who they have in the cast because of what the show is about. And you alluded to this, because they are on Showtime, a network that does not believe in getting in and getting out. If you are no. on the air on Showtime and you are not a weird Twin Peaks maxi series, you are getting seven to ten years. And the thing is, is that I really like Brian Koppelman and David Levine's taste. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that they will spend five minutes of an episode yeah. discussing the uh, Sidney Pollock, John Grisham adaption of uh, of of the firm. They're and, very like, smart talk about guys Ed Harris's role in the in the firm. Yeah, and I really like uh, Goodfellas jokes and guys playing. Uh, no Limit Hold'em and people trying is, to buy the uh, New York Giants and just everything this, that happens in this show I'm just like I'm just a part of this this I is an amazing this. juxtaposition to The Handmaid's Tale yes you're, you're like you're like, you're like ladies am I right sometimes you just want to hear oh, a guy talk about buying God. the New York Giants my bad so shout out to Reed Morano shout out to Billions and it's a perfect uh, segue into Handmaid's Tale Totally different show. Very different show. Let's ratchet it, it down a few notches. Much different about humanity. Weirdly, because like you'd yeah. think that in watching Billions, I would be like, "What's the point?" But I'm not. I'm Honestly, like, Billions is what everyone was doing when yes. this religious when cult this, was secretly taking over. <laughs> what if over. these shows take place in the same timeline? There you go. I think that is possible. I'm the king of IP. If twenty, if, <laughs> sign me up, Showtime. One thing we should do is try to make a unified theory of television shows of 2017 yes. and see like where they fit on the timeline yeah, of the same universe. Yeah, where is leftovers mm-hmm. after Billions but before Handmaid's Tale? Also, by the way, you and I after Billions, I would catch up if they wanted to talk about it. If they wanted us for you after and I Billions. were just sitting in like um, a storage locker full of money, like and, and meat, like like, like Breaking Bad <laughs> and ice juice. <laughs> yeah. Just money and ice juice. That sounds good to me. Okay. Um, 
Handmaid's Tale. Uh, Handmaid's Tale. Okay, so a couple things. Yeah, here. let's hear Getting your takes. Into it. Um, all positive things first, which is it is still exciting to me when the pieces come together and like to make it to make an exceptional or even beyond exceptional to make a uh, bold and exciting and really innovative new show. Mm-hmm. It's certainly in terms of content and the type of story they're trying to tell. It's an, it's it is hard. Like people say, well, there aren't that many shows like that. Well, no, duh. It's very hard. Despite all the outlets, despite all the talent in the industry, you really need a lot of things to line up. And what happened in this case is you have Hulu, which is making a big play to become a much larger part of your TV diet. Um, and as we've seen historically, when services or networks want to make their big plays, when they make their their best stuff, it's when they make their most creative work. That's AMC getting Mad Men and Breaking Bad when other networks had passed on them. It's USA taking a chance on Mr. Robot. Um, and uh, it's it's Netflix with Lilyhammer, the Stephen Van Zandt show that revolutionized television. <laughs> is that a punchline, or is that because you couldn't think of another example? <laughs> I, it's a little bit of a punchline. Um, but no, so Hulu wanted to make a big splash, and the other thing they got here, uh, and I want to talk about the people who made the show, and Bruce Miller and his collaborators, and Reed Morano, but they have Elizabeth Moss. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moss is the greatest television actor of our time, and here's here here here's why. Um, I was trying to think, you can help me with this, I'm putting you on the spot, but I was trying to think of like what actors are basically the face of television for different eras. Jimmy Smith's. And I was, Jimmy Smith's is for every era because he is Benjamin Button. Um, I would say in terms of a special class of TV actors, I would say Ted Danson, certainly still this way, but Ted Danson for the 80s. Okay. I was going to say Clooney for the 90s because in many ways he represented what TV was and where it was going. But he was also on Roseanne. He was on Ro- first. Also, he's on Roseanne. Yeah, and but that's ER. like hardly. I, I see what you're saying. So what I want to say is for Elizabeth Moss. Has is, anyone put together the Moss resume? There's Danson. There's Moss. But I mean specifically for the era because right. Moss was no, Mad Men and Top of the well, Lake. She was West Wing before that. And, now, and West Wing, and she's exceptional on all of them. But also the way that she acts. I mean, she is obviously a prestige actor for a prestige era of television. She's great when she's in movies too. But her ability to inhabit characters, to live inside of them for longer periods of time, to play small and intimate with her face and the way that she, you know, she, she, the way that she, the way that she plays these characters suits television's fondness for close-ups and scene work. You know, she would be lost in a big movie. Um, she is the. I just think she is the actor of our time, and she, you know, what else? She embraces memes. Which is kind Does of she? also important too. Yeah, I mean, she she she's on social media. She she kind of she plays with this stuff. What's she gets uh, it. what are her memes of choice? Uh, well, I mean, she gets the power of the Peggy Olson leaving the office meme. Okay. Um, other memes. I think she likes. <laughs> I think she really likes the one. Really committed to this. I think Elizabeth she really Musk likes. Is... She really likes the Lilyhammer meme. I don't know if you caught that, but it's, <laughs> it's little Stephen Van Zandt points to his head and he's like, "Think about it." Am I right? I'm Lilyhammer. Is that a fucking meme? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. I just, I want, sometimes on this show, I want to see how far down the staircase of bullshit I can lead you. Because <laughs> you're, you're a good friend to me. You were willing to give me the rope. Um, uh, that's what I think about Elizabeth Moss, classic guys. Classic Lilyhammer. Classic Lilyhammer. Callback. Um, we're dancing around it. The show is um, especially difficult to watch and especially interesting because of its relevance, right? So, you look at this project. Margaret Atwood wrote this novel um, about, uh, you know, a, a basically a United States that has been, sta- has been taken over by a religious cult completely. Um, women have been stripped of all rights, and those who are able to bear children serve as handmaids in the households of powerful men. 
Um, she wrote this in the 80s. Uh, she felt that this was relevant then, and it was. Um, it kind of is always relevant and terrifying in the world. But the path to get on television started years ago, before we lived in an era where those of us who feel a certain way politically feel like it is very difficult to watch the show, even more so than usual, right? Like this yeah. is a show that was created in Obama's America with, I'm sure, the deep assumption that we would be living in Hillary Clinton's America. Um, it's interesting to see how it is being received now. Versus Think maybe about how it, it. Think <laughs> about it. Am I right? Huh? It sounds like Johnny over here. No. Can we stick with that? Southside. You remember him? No. Who's he? He's, he's from Asbury. Is he? Oh, Southside Johnny and the Asbury yeah. Jukes? Yeah. Oh, I thought that was like an obscure Sopranos character. I didn't know about. <laughs> I mean, yes. Can it be all of those things? Um, I, so we could talk about the politics and the, and the thematics of it. What I wanted to say first, because I, I got a pivot. I have a pivot. Um, when I watched the pilot, what I was most impressed by, other than Elizabeth Moss's performance, was... I thought Bruce Miller, who adapted it, uh, Reed Morano directed it exceptionally, um, and his and, and Miller's collaborators really paced the S out of this thing, right? Like, is a way into this large novel that has a very difficult subject matter and a lot to download you on, basically, as to where we are in the world and what it means. I thought that they did a phenomenal job, purely on a structural level, in the pilot. Mm -hmm. I'm going to cede the floor for a minute, because this idea of them doing a great job with it as a TV show... I have a sort of a flip side argument about that as we go, like, the, as the conversation continues. But okay. I'd, I'd love to bring you, Southside Johnny, into yeah, this. Yeah, sure. Um, when you first started, I think I watched these before you, and then mm -hmm. you said, uh, this is, like, super horrifying and difficult to watch. Yeah. And I obviously, um, you know, it was a little bit of a gut check because I didn't find it to be that horrifying. I mean, obviously, like, the content of what happens in it, but my, I did not have a visceral, like, I can't watch this reaction. And I have that about um, plenty of stuff. You know, there was uh, there are several shows that are acclaimed, but, like, I used to watch even um, before it became, like, well-established that everything was going to pretty much work out for the people in Friday Night Lights. Mm -hmm. I used to watch it with, like, my hands over my eyes yeah. because I was like, I, these it needs to work out for these kids. Yes. You know what I mean? And when you start out a show with a guy winding up in a wheelchair, that's not a guarantee. Although so, things worked out for him, too. I, I am definitely someone who can... It, I, I have an easier time dealing with horror or, mm -hmm. um, you know, suspense than I do with this is drama or comedy of humiliation or suppression or whatever, you know. As a side note, the the, the current events of the show when she is working for the, the family mm -hmm. is very difficult to watch just because of the reality that they are in. It's the flashbacks that are hard for me. And it's That's, not just the politics, which, and I do want to talk about the flashbacks, as the father of girls, like the losing, the losing of her child, the stuff in the hospital, all of that stuff. I don't think that you can really take credit for Jenny O'Connor and Lena Dunham's achievements. <laughs> <laughs> that took me a second. Check your patriarchy. That was good. Um, I, I fathered this show. Uh, Grover is my baby. My point is basically that I feel like this is in some ways a masterpiece of tone. If they had done this two steps further into like this is what this feels like mm -hmm. I think it would have been too much like I, I think it would have been too much to just like watch you know because when you think about what is happening mm -hmm. in the world of the show and what's happening in the ceremonies and what's happening as these women get indoctrinated into this program it's it's too intense it's too intense to contemplate you know what I mean it is just like as a as a throw another one on like let's let's run it back kind of show if they had done it two steps 
lighter mm-hmm. if they had said like, okay, well, we're not going to show you that. We're just going to yes. imply that yes. this happened off screen. I think it would have been too too flimsy. I yes, think it would have been too thin. I think it would have been like Ann Dowd's performance would have like tipped the, the canoe over. And you just would have been like, you know what, this is like divergent. And, we're, you know, there's, there's some shit happening off screen that we don't understand or that we like they're not showing us, but it's not hitting home. There is something about the way that they choreograph this in terms of like the pacing, the are the way they've articulated the the way things are happening and it, like blade runner the things that they've chosen to specify and the things that they just leave breadcrumbs about like this uh false flag terrorist attack mm-hmm. that happened that seems to have set these events in motion and the rise of this uh religious kind of fascism to mm-hmm. to save quote unquote the country none of which i particularly want to contemplate given the state of our actual world but the way that they handle it I cannot say enough about just how delicate this subject matter would have been. Yeah, I, not only to be uh, serious enough to take it serious, take Atwood's content serious enough, but to make it actually palatable so that people will watch it. I I agree. Um, I think that one of the smartest and and boldest things that the show has done, and this is we're we're talking about the show through four episodes, but I don't think we're spoiling. But I don't, so far, we're not really spoiling much. Um, is that what it has done is it, it's rooted the horror and the reality of their circumstance in the body. Um, that is a very risky thing to do. Yeah, man. Um, but every violation of Elizabeth Moss, who plays Alfred's body, and I don't just mean sexual, there's just there's pure violence as yeah, well. She gets and, there's, and there's emotional violence um, registers. Um, we see what is happening to her, we see the thrusts. We see her reaction when she goes to this creepy uh, gynecologist. We see her face when she is being physically tortured. Yeah. We see her body lying on the floor, you know. And so they, it, she's. It's a brave performance, but it, it, to your point, it is an incredibly skillful and harrowing um, decision by the creative team to give us that and so, to let us into that part of the world. Here is something that's been discussed. I've seen in various places, and it's the kind of the most. In terms of like a storytelling device, mm-hmm. it's the thing I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Several of the episodes end with a music cue. Are people uh, writing about this? Because I wanted to talk about. I this. don't know if I have. I've seen it on Twitter. People just being like that. I didn't need yes. the the end zone dance for the yep. right here. Yep. But basically, like there will be like a f- fifty minutes of an episode. And you're like fuck. Yep. And then it ends, and uh, Simple Minds comes on, and you're like, are we? We're okay. We're like, yep. so minds play. We're in the Breakfast Club. We're good. Baxman Hale is a it, nice guy. Like, what's going on? Like, it, and that has happened several times. Almost every episode. And it's far. a very, very effective thing. It definitely lets me out of that episode a little bit, like more, like okay, fuck, let's watch another Handmaid's Tale, which is probably the goal. Yes, I think it sucks. I think it's a terrible choice. It has thrown me out of my a lot. It, the, the 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 way I'm speaking about my admiration for like the the depiction of the female body on the show, and then they play Simple Minds and and Alfred memes herself and is like, "Don't let the bastards grind you down, bitches." Yeah, like no, 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 no. That I, it just feels so tonally well, off to me. And this is you, also the problem with voiceover is you always have to think about. Here's one of the, th- the reasons why I hate voiceover. And I I did I took me a few times watching like Goodfellas before I have, uh, Sam Esmail on the phone. He'd like to speak to you about this. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it took me a several times even watching like Goodfellas, which is probably uh-huh. like in my top five favorite films of all time, to be like, yeah, okay. Because I always ask, 
from where is this voice over, voice mm -hmm. coming? From the future, mm -hmm. telling me that everything has worked out. Because mm -hmm. even if you're doing the like, this is me. I'm like, you know, Sunset Boulevard. I'm lying face down in the pool. Like it's, I don't love yep, that. Yep, that's me. Bet you wonder how I. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's a meme, by the way, where, for those listening at home. Where is Elizabeth Moss's voiceover coming from? Well, I think in this, I think she's. It's her internal monologue, right? In the moment. Yes. But when they do those moments, mm -hmm. it suggests a eventual triumph. Right. And these are the things that I think that we're seeing is a very interesting collision between cinematic and artistic ambition and television. Mm -hmm. And I and I mean that that is value neutral, this comment. I think this is just where we're headed and what and and one of the things that it's if you're a fan of the medium, it's interesting to to track. You're pointing out aspects of it, the voiceover, which is from what I understand, I think I'm the only graduate of Brown University to have not read the book from a small sample size of right. my friends uh, and colleagues. So I don't know the book, but um, the, there's a lot of voiceover in the book and that's sort of what livens it up because there's a vibrant voice. Narration of the book? Well, no, but that it's, <laughs> no, yeah, it's first person. It's, yeah. have, you, have you read a book? They're great. <laughs> this thing um, is all voiceover. <laughs> Where are the pictures at? Southside? Um, Think about it. So what I'm saying is uh, these little things that are, whether they were intentional, whether they were network notes to keep you in this difficult world. Yes. I think you're, you're right onto it. We hear Elizabeth Moss's voice suggesting triumph. We see flashbacks to Samira Wiley having some radical rebellious spirit that I'm sure we'll pick up on again. Mm -hmm. um, we have these, these big act outs uh, with pop songs and with, you know, these, I, the, the fourth episode ends with this swell of solidarity that I just was surprised by because it was a cool moment. But it did not feel to me to be in keeping with the hour of television I just watched. And so this speaks to my, my issue, which is a small one. I'm a fan of the show. I'm admiring the show. Um, but my, my small issue with it, which is the TV-ness of it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a weird argument for me to take because I'm always arguing for the strength of TV as a medium. But certain things. Now, I, I don't remember the movie they made of this in the 80s. I didn't see it. Um, the Natasha Richardson. Is Natasha that what I Richardson think? movie. Yeah. Um, and I can only imagine this giant book that's literally about world creation and world sustaining, and then I, I imagine at some point world upheaval, um, to tell it in two hours. I can't even imagine it wouldn't do it justice. Well, they're going to make a second season of this. But, well, this is what I'm getting at. Um, but there are moments, particularly in the first two episodes, where they suggest, where the, the, the subject matter is so heavy, but the approach to it is so artistic that it elevates. It is not, because TV is, and I'm not the only person to say this, people have said this happily and they've said this with misery, people in the business. TV is a plot machine. You know, it just grinds, you, you feed plot in and it fuels the engine and you keep moving forward. There are moments like the stoning or the, this, not stoning, they, when they beat the rapist, you know, when you see that when Reed Morano shoots it from above and mm -hmm. the red cloaks and I'm like, this is just something else. There's something aesthetically um, inspiring here and disturbing and there's violence and the sound and it's coming together in an aesthetic whole and leaving me with a kind of, elevated but um, ambiguous emotion that movies can leave you with. And then it's just back into it with this grinding plot, and the, grinding is a bad word, but the, pl but the plot and the, fl and the flashbacks plot. and this sense of world building and story building. And then nothing bummed me out more, quite honestly, is when they announced season two of Handmaids, which isn't to say it doesn't deserve it. Much th Things that are much worse have deserved second seasons. But I was kind of excited about the idea that Hulu was just like, we're just going to dunk on this story and leave you with something amazing. It doesn't always have to be two seasons. Now, the truth behind these decisions at the moment in Hollywood are really like, you know, a year ago when they got, or two years ago when they got together, Bruce Miller said, I'm going to tell the story of the book with some additions and I'm going to tell it in two seasons or three seasons or whatever. And they 
they said, okay, but you don't announce it, wink, wink, you see how it's sure. received, you get people on board. But so in a way, it's no different. It's still a limited series. It's just being sp spun out as this. But there have been times when the, the Jenga block stacking of television have taken me out of this because TV is great for a lot of stories and I don't know, and we're learning about what stories can, TV can support. This is a test case to see whether it can support a story I think the like next this. show that we're going to talk about is also a perfect test case. So yeah. let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then I, I want to talk about American Gods. Want to take a break here to talk to you about the Black Tux. Looking great for a wedding or a special event has never been easier with theblacktux.com. We are big fans of these guys from our uh, wonderful duds that they put us in for the Oscars show. With high-quality rental suits and tuxedos delivered straight to your doorstep, the Black Tux is giving guys a new way to rent. And get this, the Black Tux offers free home try-on so you can see the fit and feel the quality of your suit months before your event. And the best part, it's completely done online, so there's no trips to the tux shop required. I can't tell you how easy this is. Shows up in a box, put it on, check the fit, put it back in the box, send it back. TheBlackTux.com lets you create your look or choose from tons of stylist-selected outfits starting at just $95. And these suits have a modern fit and are made from fine Italian wool, the highest quality on the rental market. If you have any questions or issues, their expert customer care team has your back every step of the way. After ordering, your suit will arrive 14 days before your event. That's a full two weeks to try it on, make sure everything fits. And if anything is less than perfect, the Black Tux will send you a free replacement right away. When your event's over, you just drop the rental back in the mail. The shipping is free both ways. How easy is that? To get $20 off your purchase, visit theblacktux.com slash BSPN. That's theblacktux.com slash BSPN for $20 off your first purchase. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Delta. You know, when you're trying to get from point A to point B, oftentimes all of your energy is spent on simply making it to your destination. And that's why Delta offers every type of entertainment for every passenger for free with Delta Studio. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm up in the plane, that's like where I get some of my best like watching done. You can just crush hours of television or movies while you're up in the air, while you're traveling. Delta Studio grants you access to over a thousand hours of entertainment, all from your seat back or your own device, and it's 100% free. Choose from podcasts, games, television, up to 300 movies. You even get access to HBO, Showtime, and 18 channels of live satellite television on select flights. Or you can listen to your favorite artists with Delta Studios' expansive music library. Delta is also partnered with the likes of HGTV, Refinery29, Food Network, Hulu Originals, WMIC Studios, Curious World, Headspace, and Disney XD to offer you more great content. And it's all streamable from your laptop, your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android tablet device via the GoGo Entertainment app. So buckle up. Relax and delve into another world as you soar above your own with the endless entertainment from Delta Studio. Your journey is sure to fly by. Okay, Andy, American Gods, it's a uh, show on stars. From, That's um, with a Z. Yeah, from Brian Fuller, who we all know and love from Hannibal, and Michael Green. It's actually the year of Michael Green. I don't know if you saw that. You want, that you want to run down? This is Michael Green is a, a, a writer who. Um, it ha has like the the four top fucking credits this year because he comes he's come he's been around he comes from the Whedon verse right Why like he worked on Buffy so much today yeah he is and he he's used to write for Everwood and Smallville and Jack and Bobby uh, and he wrote for Heroes but this year he has Blade Runner twenty forty nine he does uh, he has a screenwriting credit on Alien Covenant Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express and Logan 
Wow. And American Gods. And, and he's, he's developing... He's co-writer, co-executive producer of American Gods. And he's developing Why the Last Man, one of the best comics of the last 20 years for FX. Can you tell me a little bit, because I actually was not familiar with the source material. Okay. Uh, I'm not a Gaiman head. No. No. I'm not, like, not out of... just It's just a, bl- a blind spot for me. So tell me a little about it. Uh, American Gods is a 2001 novel by Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman is... Um, considered by many to be one of, if not the greatest comic book writer of all time. I mean, he sort of left that genre behind and he writes novels and other things now. But he 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 wrote the DC comic Sandman that influenced many generations of storytellers and wannabe goths. Um, he is incredibly uh, erudite, clever, um, almost encyclopedic in his knowledge of this idea of storytelling and folklore myth, storytelling yeah. and myth. And he has this ability in his writing, particularly in Sandman, to spin these stories that seem to be so, like, like they're like spun with like gossamer silk and they make you feel smarter and transported having read them. Um, and American Gods is just like, of course he wrote this book because it's basically... It's a, a novel, not a graphic It's a novel. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prose novel. There's some voiceover in it, so it might interest you. <laughs> Um, a, basically about a world where the old gods, um, one of whom is represented by Ian McShane's character in the, in the series, uh, in America are at war with the new gods of like media and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he sort of radically reimagines what gods would be like today and what worship would mean and, and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's, it's Neil Gaiman, it's Neil Gaiman 101. And it's interesting, and it's, it's interesting to note that it's, other people have struggled to give us what he does in other mediums. There yeah. really have been, to my mind, no adaptations or successful adaptations of his work. Star, like, what was that one? Oh, th- right. There was that movie. Matthew Vaughn made that movie that yeah. I didn't see. Star, some, Starlight? Stardust? Stardust. Stardust. Yeah. Um, my favorite Muse song, by the way. Just I feel do like you have a favorite Muse Just that song? one. That's a good song. The rest of them, eh. Um so this one has been in development for a long time. This was, yeah. it seemed like a slam dunk, and yet it took 16 years to bring it to the I screen. I can't imagine why it would seem like a slam dunk, because it is. I well, I think it seems like a slam dunk early on, when you're Fruit like, loops, you're like, like bestseller, um, sure. religion, mythology, Neil Gaiman, like, it, it, you know, all the genre heads wanted to crack at it. HBO was going to make it, and that just seemed like, you know, it was announced in the wake of or concurrently with Game of Thrones, like this is going to be their, their big genre play, and it's big enough for them they finally had to be like, look, we tried three writers on it. It didn't work. Um, so it was a long time coming. And it's uh, it's a lot. It's a spicy meatball. Yeah. Um, let's start with the good stuff first. Yeah. Looks like a billion dollars. Really does. David Slade, who's probably, well, he's among the handful of best directors working on TV. Yeah, works he with did Fuller often. several, obviously did a lot of Hannibal stuff, and then also directed a very underrated horror movie oh, what's called that? 30 Days of Night right, with Josh ba- Hartnett. Based on a comic book. Yeah, it was just an excellent, I thought that was always an excellent movie, but I, I've liked David Slade's stuff for a while. And, I mean, there's a scene in the first episode where a very, like, Milo Yiannopoulos-type dude is in the back of a limousine smoking synthetic toad toad skin and remember it's not a limousine it's a robot vr console that's attached itself to the face that's of pretty the much lead how character I feel when I'm watching this show. shadow moon my wife bounced on this joint like 35 minutes and it was just like this is giving me a headache yeah i i texted you last night when i was watching the pilot and i was like maybe the best i'm so happy i did a poor job convincing my wife to stick around to watch it because when the bellagio fountains of arterial blood started 
bouncing, blowing out of Viking skulls in yeah. the first 30 seconds. Yeah. So I was like, this is that not guy for everyone. Hit by, that, that's going to be a meme, is that dude getting shot with all those arrows. And it should, should just say, never tweet. Or, <laughs> <laughs> meme creator! Think about it. Yes. Why am I doing that? I feel like I'm, I've never seen Lilyhammer. Yeah. I am <laughs> full disclosure. Me either. I and and I'm just I'm kind of want to do the part in Goodfellas where Jimmy Conway is like you insulted him a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Karen. But I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, the best part of the show. By the way, that's the uh, that's the pull <laughs> quote from our podcast. <laughs> Someone put that on iTunes. This show, if Ian McShane wasn't in it, this show would be drifting off into like outer 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 space. Yeah, it's so weird. I don't know what it's about. I don't even understand like the undergirding of mythology that may be at play here. Like mm-hmm. it, it, it is not doing a lot of uh, busy work. You know, we talked a lot about of course, it's this very episode. busy. Yeah, but, but it's it, not. It's not doing a lot. I don't know where the cliffs notes are, but I, they right. did not get dropped off in my house. And then then McShane is on, and McShane plays Mister Wednesday, who you were saying is an old god. He, I mean, I, think, I don't know if they've announced it. I mean, he is. Uh, I'll put it this way. He is a a god who is played by another uh, British titan of the stage in a popular comic book movie series. Is is he actually um, Alfred from Batman? He is Alfred from Batman. <laughs> That's right. You got it. Um, I don't know. Who, who you, why don't you tell... Okay, you can skip ahead 15 seconds if you don't want the spoiler. Who is it? He's Odin. Oh, no shit, really? Yeah, Wednesday is Odin's day. That's where the Wednesday comes from. What? Did you know that? No. This is the shit that Neil Gaiman teaches you. Seriously. And what? It, it's the kind of stuff that makes you feel like super Wednesday smart. Wednesday is named after Odin? Yeah, who do you think Thursday is named after? Thor's day. No, it's not. Yes, it is. What? What world have you been living in, man? We are all Asgardians. This, I'm... You're giving me the look like I'm leading you down you the bullshit staircase. Is this going to be like, is this like one of your like... No. I, this is true. This is a thousand percent Thor's true. Thor's day? Yes. yes. That's what we're doing? Yeah, that's what we're doing in three days. Okay, so let's just let's just table that for maybe <laughs> when Ragnarok comes out. Sooner than you think. Uh, McShane is... You talked about Elizabeth Moss being like the, act, yeah. the television actor of her generation. Like McShane is in the convo just because... When he is on screen, no matter how good or bad the material is, he is like his above replacement. Like what he does better than that replacement yeah. level actor who could play he, that role is just so high. And he can take this show like completely comes to life. I mean, Jonathan Tucker is really good in it. And uh, Paula Schreiber is awesome in Porn it. Stash is in the show as a leprechaun. violent leprechaun. Yes. Uh, but Ian McShane really, really does the damn People thing. Sound like, it does sound like we're, t- we're smoking toad skin. Yeah, I don't know. It's, but, I mean, like, I guess I would. So here's the thing is, like, this is, like, uh, like Preacher, I went into this not mm-hmm. knowing the source material, even if I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. I was aware of Preacher. I kind of flipped through it, but I had mm-hmm. never read it. And I found Preacher to be, Preacher is one of my favorite shows on television. I think it's amazing. Preacher's think, tons of fun. Yeah. This show is got some stuff going for it. Sure. But is just right now a little bit out of touching distance for me. Here's here's why I think people should watch the pilot, whether it's their bag or not. Because, you know, put on put on your, your like your TV 101 or like frankly graduate level hats at this point. Um the show is a beautiful, dazzling, confusing, exciting, annoying mess. And then 20 minutes into it, our main character, who I reiterate is named Shadow Moon recently released from prison, gets on an airplane 
and he's sitting next to Ian McShane. And then the grown-ups take over. Yeah. The scene of them on the, on the plane together, McShane has breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and a fucking after-dinner mint in this scene. <laughs> he is so exciting to watch yeah. on the screen. I like I levitated off it's of my couch. It's been a minute since like I've seen ten like a ten minute scene with McShane because like he's in John Wick. He does bit things here and there. He like shows he up. He was on Thrones last year. Yeah, I mean he's he, good. Yo, but it's rare that you get. I haven't. We haven't gotten a lot of like high usage McShane since Deadwood. He, he is incredible in this scene, and it was it's an interesting lesson because you you need actors to sell this stuff you need to ground it so for as visually impressive and you know as entertaining and sort of head scratching and intriguing there's this long very bloody opening that actually does tie into McShane's arrival in America mm-hmm. because yeah, the, yeah, the totem gotcha. and the blah 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 um, you know that's okay and I generally am like let's go for it let's go go let's go full gonzo with TV let's take advantage of this stuff but of, of all the toys you have to play with but y- you can't just go there because when I was watching it I was like this is just kind of a noisy mess and there's enough good stuff on TV that I don't need to be dazzled by that anymore. I mean, everything Brian Fuller does and David Slade does with him is visually worthwhile. And I don't think he does things that are just throwaway ever. I mean, he really considers every image. But Hannibal was um, horrifying, but slow and mm-hmm. considered. And it, you sort of would, you, you, there, was, there was savagery and horror, but you were forced to confront it. This is a lot more glib, which is probably a more successful tone. It's a tone that's in Preacher, too. Mm-hmm. A successful tone for this type of show. Um, but I found it glib a, a, to the point of being disposable until McShane shows up. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, the other strike against the show is it's, tr- it's problematic, and this is true in movies, too, when it's certainly not unique. But when your hero is the least interesting character, yes. when all the colorful, you know, gods and monsters and character actors are surrounding this guy, who, by the way, full disclosure, gorgeous, very <laughs> handsome man, our Shadow Moon, yeah, uh, former uh, model from England, who acts like a former model from England. Right. Like maybe he gets better in it, but there's like a scene where they've asked him to like give this monologue. This is uh, Ricky Woodle you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, they asked him to give a monologue at a graveside in the middle of the episode, and. This character is supposedly carrying this burden and this grief, but we keep forgetting about that because we're so dazzled by McShane. So it, it's tough. You know what this is like, Chris? It's making a, it's making a meal out of side dishes. Yeah. Sometimes you can do that. You go I to Boston do, Market. Boston Market. I used to be the king of that. The Symphony, the Symphony Hall, Boston Market in Boston. I used to just roll deep with the mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, and corn. And then I'd mix it all up together. When? Because that's how college was. At what age did someone tell you? Because I have an answer to this too. Did someone tell you that mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese is not a balanced meal? No, like those aren't. Stuffing. Because, sorry, stuffing. Oh, I would macaroni do, and cheese and corn. Oh, much better. No, I did that too. Mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese. Like this is one of God's greatest. Yeah. But you're not supposed to do that as an adult. It's too many starches, too many sides. It is, yeah, sure. But when you're a college student and yeah. your diet is different, <laughs> your diet, your your whole physical corpus. Yeah, I'd is say a little bit that, say that you, you know um, you, that that stuff just like you burn it off, man. You burn it off with learning. You know, I, I texted you a, a photo that, of of you uh, from the fall of 1998. Had a lot that, more hair that I found. You, but you know, you look you look very <laughs> they well. Never, they don't put that on the Boston market warning. <laughs> <laughs> a mixture of starches can cause male pattern baldness. But there's not a moment of it you regret, is there? No, how can you regret it, man? So let's uh, let, let's recap here. We're gonna finish Handmaid's Tale. Yes, I think, of I think, we're, I think yeah. we're in. I'm gonna give American Gods another run. Maybe we'll try. We'll drop in a little bit later in the season. Okay, so Thursday we got this Veep episode with David Mandel. It's 
also very heavy on Seinfeld and Curb. So if you're a fan of any of those shows. No Veep spoilers. No Veep spoilers. Then Monday, uh, you know, we can do Leftovers. We could do. We've got to go back to Leftovers. We have to check back in with Leftovers. We have to check back in with uh, Fargo later in the week. Mm -hmm. We also have to. We haven't talked about Silicon Valley this year. We also haven't talked about The Return of Catastrophe. Oh, yeah. Which is back on Amazon and thrilling people the world over. Okay, so we'll do that. I would like to start a social media campaign Mm -hmm. to encourage Andy to see Alien Covenant. It corresponds with an important life event for him. Yeah, I just feel very warmly towards this movie because all over Los Angeles there are posters, very, very stark posters that just say, my birthday, and then they say, run. I think some of them say scream, too, or maybe that's just I'm projecting that. Maybe we can get a GoFundMe to uh, pay for your ticket. And my therapy. (laughs) Because listeners of this podcast may, may know that I saw Prometheus in the theater the day after a Grandland summer party with you and Sean Fennessy with a blood alcohol level roughly <laughs> roughly equivalent to the movie's running time. Um, that was a tough day in my in my own chest chestal area. Yeah. But you know, I, I, I did it with the help of some good friends. We'll be there. So uh, we want to talk about Covenant coming up. I don't know if we're gonna get a chance to talk about King Arthur. I want to see Guardians of the Galaxy, man. Well, maybe we'll hit Guardians. Can we since you're since you're putting me on front street with my reticence to see horror movies, you don't want to see Guardians. You don't want to see it. You're out. I just don't care. You don't like space hijinks. Uh, I'll see it. I mean, you're, it's my like, responsibility to see it. But, but when there's it, triple headers of playoff basketball, it's hard for me to be like, I got to go watch this small piece of bark. Are your universe. criticisms of it similar to Neil deGrasse Tyson's criticisms of it? No, in that there are too many I don't give a shit explosions with science. noise? Oh, yeah. Is that his problem with it? Well, there are no audible explosions in they space. Just, like, just say that for every space movie. You don't have to make a viral video for every sci-fi movie where are like, well, actually. Let Neil deGrasse Tyson eat. <laughs> That's his brand. Think about it, Neil. <laughs> you insulted him a little bit. Sorry. All right. T- talk to you next week. Have a great job. You did a great job, Bransky. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Delta Airlines for sponsoring the show today. Delta offers every type of entertainment for every passenger for free with Delta Studio. Delta Studio grants you access to over 1,000 hours of entertainment, all from your seat back or from your own device, 100% for free. Choose from podcasts like The Watch, games, television, up to 300 movies like comedies, dramas, family films, thrillers. Delta Studio has tons of new releases and all of your old favorites. Plus, you get access to HBO and Showtime to catch up on Game of Thrones or Billions. Plus, you get 18 channels of live television on select flights, so you won't miss those games. You can listen to your favorite artists with Delta Studio's expansive music library or check out some original content. They've partnered with the likes of HGTV, Refinery29, Food Network, Hulu Originals, WMYC Studios, Curious World, Headspace, and Disney XD to offer you great content. And it's all streamable from your laptop, your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android tablet device via the GoGo Entertainment app. So buckle up, relax, and delve into another world while you soar above your own. With endless entertainment from Delta Studio, your journey is sure to fly by.